0: listening dog media sorry somebody's trying to get me on the phone for some reason it cut out the yeah sorry there we go how
1: to dj how to dj how to DJ. dj dj how to dj You just felt like you were walking into this magic den. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How To DJ. How mad is it that I'm getting to do this? I've already exceeded everything I feel I should have been doing. Finally, I figured out a way I could get records for free. That was it. I'm not going there. How To DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. There was a sort of excitement about the feeling that I got from that, which I
0: couldn't explain at
1: the time. And my guest for this episode presented the old grey whistle test. It wasn't just
0: fashionable. It was almost required that you took a very critical line of the music that you were playing.
1: He's been a BBC presenter for more than 50 years. We were really experiencing
0: great album music in real time. It was a fantastic
1: moment. And simply, he's one of the great broadcasters of our time. You've got to love the
0: job. And I'm sure you know you, you can tell with any of the big, big, successful DJs through the years, they've taken themselves onto air and they've loved every minute of it. I'm really talking to them. It's as if I've got somebody sitting opposite me in the chair here in the studio and I'm just looking them in the eyes and talking to them. And that's
1: really the key to it, I think. Bob Harris, welcome to How To DJ. Thanks, Chris. Bob. What an absolute privilege and pleasure this is to have time with you, Bob.
0: Yeah, same.
1: You were born in Northampton in 1946. Do you remember putting a record on for the very first time?
0: Yes, I do. I really do, actually. I was, what would I have been, 1957. So I was just coming up to probably my 11th birthday and I was on holiday with my mum and dad in Cromer. And we were walking down the promenade and I heard a record blasting up from the jukebox in a little coffee bar on the promenade and I was transfixed by this music. And I went in and I cashed all my holiday money into Thruppney Bits because that's what the jukebox took. And I just fed Thruppney Bits into the jukebox to listen to this record over and over again. And it was Diana by Paul Anker. It was number one in Britain for eight weeks in late 1957. And I bought the original copy that I had on 78 RPM, if you can believe it, because my mum and dad had a wind-up record player. This is how long ago this was. And that original copy is now in a frame and it's on the wall in my studio. So that was the first record that I ever got myself, put on my own turntable and put a needle down on.
1: And so is that obviously where the love affair with music started? It is. Whatever it was about that record,
0: and, you know, it wasn't one of the raw rock and roll records, which I immediately began to love, you know. It wasn't Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard. It was a pop record, but I, I just knew that whatever it was that that record represented, I wanted to be a part of that. I Even at that moment, I knew that. So that was the record that pushed open the door for me.
1: What do you think it was that you wanted to be a part of? I didn't even really know, but there was a sort of excitement
0: about the feeling that I got from that record, which I couldn't explain at the time. I just couldn't explain it. But I got myself a little dance record player and my parents' home had a little cellar and I had my record player down in the cellar and I used to invite friends over. To bring their new records with them. And we had what I suppose you would call record hops, <laughs> where I'd be playing them the new Buddy Holly record, they'd be playing me the new Everly Brothers single, or, you know, we had it all on 45s and had them scattered around us. And it was really then that I discovered the feeling of playing music to people and seeing on their faces the love that they had for that piece of music and the enjoyment that that music was bringing into their lives. So that was when I decided, and I did decide then, that I wanted to be doing this for the rest of my life. I didn't quite know how that was gonna work, but I just knew that playing music for people was what I was kind of born to do. It's mad, isn't it? But even at that moment, I knew it in my early teens. How did that
1: turn into a career in radio?
0: Well, I did a lot of practicing at home in so much as, I got a Grundig tape machine, and uh, I graduated from a danzette to an auto-change (laughs) deca-stereogram, you know, with a spindle, and you pile a a sort of stack of singles on, and the bottom single would drop onto the turntable, and then the arm would come across and touch down on the vinyl. And I could time it so that I would hold microphone next to the speaker on the deca-stereogram, while the record was playing. And then when it began to fade, I'd start to talk and I, I'd be back announcing that record and then introducing the next one, watching it drop. And then the needle would hit the vinyl and I'd go, and this is the latest from Douay Neddy. And it would start. Or I could obviously talk over the beginning of it and then talk up to the vocal and do that. So I was recording all of these programs onto my Grundig tape machine, which I loved. I didn't know how to edit but I certainly knew how to put a program together it was funny because when I started on whistle test my mum jokingly threatened to send all these old tapes to the enemy. <laughs> uh, how did that get you to Radio 1? I mean obviously I was listening to Radio Luxembourg the light program DJs that were on David Jacobs in particular I mean my first mention on air was on a program that David was doing, a sort of midday spin, I think it was called. And my mum wrote to him to ask him to do a dedication for me on my 15th birthday. And he did. And the thrill of hearing my name on the radio, funnily enough, is this sort of slight digression, but my mum then wrote to him to thank him for doing this dedication to me and uh, to thank him for all the lovely music that he was playing at the time. People like Mantovani and David Whitfield. And he wrote back to my mother to say how lovely that you have written to me. I really appreciate it. And so began a correspondence between the two of them that then lasted through the years. And when I started on Radio 2, crossing the broadcasting house, my first Saturday evening show, David was doing a live show in Studio 1J just down the corridor. He had no idea that, as it were, I was my mother's son. He didn't connect the two at all. Uh, even through my whole career, he hadn't made it, that connection. So I thought, I'm, I, you know, I can't go on air on Radio too that he doesn't know, because I wanted also to kind of, in some way, acknowledge his influence over me. So I went down and walked into his studio. It was quite put out that I'd sort of walked in on a yellow light. But uh, I said, you know, the Dora Harris that you've been corresponding with all these years? I said, well, that's my mother.
1: Who's...
0: Oh my goodness! You know, so every time I saw David around the BBC from then on, he would say to me, "Oh, hello, Bob, and how's your mother?" <laughs> so you know, David was very instrumental in because he he was doing Pick of the Pops, and uh, anyway, a friend of mine from Northampton moved up to London to uh, study at the Central School of Art, and I went came up to Hampstead actually, where he's living, to visit him. This is late in 1966. And I was desperate to get to London to start getting myself somehow, I didn't quite know how, involved in pirate radio. You know, the stations were pumping out pop music 24 hours a day, we'd never heard anything like it. That was an incredible new generation of DJs and I just wanted to be part of that. So John said, "But well, is, there is literally a room going here. So I drove back to Northampton, packed my car up and my stuff, drove up to London and moved into this little bedsit in uh, Hampstead Hill Gardens. It was brilliant. I loved it so much because I was here in London then during that time of what they called the counterculture, you know, the summer of love, summer of 67, you know, everything was kind of exploding into color and music was absolutely everywhere. And I did an interview in late 67 because I thought maybe my best route into the music industry was through writing. Writing was a very portable activity in those days because you had a little portable typewriter. It a bit like having a laptop now. And I got commissioned to write an article about John Peel. Well, I mean, I pitched everywhere to do an article on John and uh, went over to meet him late in 67. And I met Mark Bolan on the same day. And I became friends with both of them. And John took me under his wing and he and I began to discuss ideas that I had for radio and everything else. I then co-founded Time Out Magazine, which diverted me for about a year. But John and I just kept in touch. And when I left Time Out in the summer of '69, I was doing some gigs around London at this point. I was doing a really amazing program of music at the Royal College of Art every Tuesday evening which I love doing. And John said, these playlists that you're creating are really good. You should take this into this producer at Radio One at the time, Jeff Griffin. And so John introduced me to Jeff. Jeff took me into Radio One to do a pilot. And I found myself then the following year on air, sitting in for John on Sounds of the Seventies. So that was the pathway.
1: Were your parents in music, and uh, um, were they supportive of what you were doing or, or was there the usual, you need to get a proper job thing? There was that because I left school in a hurry.
0: I was 17 and a half, just going into the sixth form. And um, it's quite a long story, but I pedalled back to my house, got all my school books, slammed them in the saddlebags of my bike and pedalled back to school walked through to the headmaster's office and threw my books on his desk. You know, I think about it now. It was a very dramatic thing. He'd wanted to give me the cane over something and I was incensed. It was still in the days of corporal punishment and I refused. So he threatened me with also right. So I, I pedaled back home and it, you know, when the red mist had cleared, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I've got to go home now and face my dad. And sure enough, that was my dad on the doorstep waiting for me, you know. And I thought, he's gonna be furious. He wasn't, he was really calm. He was a policeman. And he said, so this was all very dramatic. Rob, what are you gonna do now? And I said, well, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about He said, well, why don't you come into the police cadets? He wanted me to follow in his footsteps, you know. He said, give it 18 months. I'll be able to oversee what you're doing if you give it everything then when it comes to your 19th birthday, if you decide that this is not the career for you, then I'll back you in everything that you do from then on. We shook hands on it. And I did. I mean, I actually had a really good time in the police cadets. I was playing a lot of rugger in those days. And I immediately found myself in the police team. And when you're playing sport, if you're in any of the services, you get a massive amount of time off for, you know, training, travel, matches, and... uh, I really enjoyed it, but obviously it wasn't the world for me. So then when John invited me up to London, that was the moment. So I broke away, came up to London and my dad came up actually for the second show that I ever did in the studio across the road. Terry Wogan was in the studio just before me. And uh, so I introduced my dad to Terry Wogan and they were talking in the corner as I was getting myself set up for my show. And my dad was saying to Terry Wogan, so, you know, Rob's obviously gonna go into radio. What advice would you give? Uh, You know, how secure is it and all of that? And he said, well, Mr. Harris, to give you an idea with the security, I'm currently on a 13 week contract. So, you know, that's how secure it is. But the very lovely thing about this was that, but four years later, my dad came up to London to meet me we were going off to the cinema or something. I can't remember exactly now, but my dad was waiting for me in reception, main reception of Broadcasting House, you know, the big arched marble reception area. And he was sitting over in the seats along the wall on the far side. And Wogan came downstairs, was striding across the big expanse of the reception area and glanced across and saw my dad and stopped dead. and went, oh, Mr. Harris, how are you? My dad could not believe that after all those years, Terry Wogan had remembered him, you know, placed him, you know, great to see Rob doing so well, and because I was on whistle test by this time. And uh,
1: yeah. Interesting that hearing you
0: call yourself Rob. My dad always used to call me Rob. In fact, everybody prior to Radio 1 called me Rob. My first wife, with whom I'm still very close, still calls me Rob.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So, John Peel, I suppose from what you said, you have so much to thank him for.
0: Oh, yeah. I was a Peel protégé. You know, John really helped me in so many ways. He backed me. When he got behind you, it was an incredible feeling. Like with Mark, uh, obviously, John was a huge uh, Mark Boland slash Tyrannosaurus Rex fan. So whenever he did any media work or interviews or anything like that, he would insist that Mark went with him because then he was also offering a platform of promotion for Mark. So hence, when I went over to John's to do the interview with him, Mark was there because John wanted me to meet Mark and support him as well. So between us, you know, I became really good friends with Mark and I became good friends with John. In fact, with Mark, I was the DJ on the first big T-Rex tour in 71 when they were having that, run of hits, you know, the breakthrough was Rider White's White Swan, which hit the charts exactly as I started on Radio One. And then that run, Jeepster, Hot Love, Get It On, Telegram Sound, that incredible run. That's when we were touring and I was Mark's kind of support band. I'd be out on stage, Chris, in front of the audience there with a double deck unit and the music going out through Mark's speakers just slamming them with all the great tracks of the day. You know, one of the ones that went down really well with the audience at the time was uh, The Doors, Texas Radio and The Big Beat from LA Woman. The audience, it was just hundreds and hundreds of screaming 14-year-old girls. And all I had to say was, Mark likes this track. And, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. That I love that tour so much. But as I say, John... He was a sounding board for me. There were two people, him and Alexis Corner, who were my big sort of mentor figures at the time.
1: Radio One was a competitive place then. And I guess that you and John formed a pretty tight unit.
0: We did. Well, Radio One split into two very distinct factions at the time one was daytime and the top 40, and the other was evenings. And sounds of the 70s, and if you like the progressive music shows, the album shows. There was an absolute division between the two. And for many, many years, I thought, Radio One worked extremely successfully on the idea of ratings by day, reputation by night. That was the way that they verbalized it. And so we were in a little nighttime weekend enclave, which was myself, John. Pete Drummond, Stuart Henry, Alan Black, and our respective producers. So that would be Jeff Griffin, Pete Rosima, John Muir, John Walters, and then eventually, obviously, a bit later, Andy Kershaw. We were on the third floor at Egton House, as was, and mainstream daytime was on the fourth floor, I think it was. I never saw Simon Bates or DLT, and actually never saw them, and they never saw me. Our worlds were completely different, despite the fact that we were all under the same roof. (laughs) Yeah, so John and like all the producers in those days also, it wasn't open plan, they all had offices. So we would be in Jeff's office, let's say, hanging out, just playing music, exchanging tracks, sitting there talking, Alan Black and I became very good friends. You know, Alan would be saying that he'd heard this jazz rock band that he loved, and I'd be saying, oh, I've I've just picked up this new Joni Mitchell album. And uh, we were really experiencing great album music
1: in real time. It was a fantastic moment. It must have been so exciting. When you got a whistle test, Bob, first of all, what are your fondest memories of the show? And you were pretty outspoken back then. Is there anything that you regret saying? That's a good question, actually, Chris. You know, because the whole thing
0: about Whistle Test with me in the sort of early two or three years in particular, I would say, is that I, I was learning how to do the job in a very public way. You know, you're on TV every week, you are the only show of that kind. It became the main music show alongside Top of the Pops on UK television. And by the time we got to sort of 75, 76, we've got audiences in the five and a half million mark. Also, there was a very strong movement for a while of superstar rock writers and actually superstar rock photographers, you know, that the culture, it's hard to explain it now, but the culture was that magazines like Rolling Stone, were almost as important as the musicians they featured. You put anybody on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and they were guaranteed that their album was going to virtually slam into the charts at number one. The rock writers were incredibly powerful in those days and very ego-driven. It wasn't just fashionable, it was almost required that you took a very critical line of the music that you were playing. And in fact, although occasionally I was critical of the music we played i was actually accused at the time of being far too soft on some of the musicians that came in so it took me a little while to realize that with music we're all on the same side and you fast forward the clock to what about five or six years ago when there was the whistle test revival on bbc television for one night only and it was live three hours we've as good as broke twitter i mean the program was trending all evening, all night, following morning and everything else. And we were driving back after the show. The show was such a joy to do. And it was genuinely a triumph. It really was. So my children, well, Mars, Dylan and Flo, my three youngest were in the car with us. And Beth Nielsen Chapman, and we're all driving back and we're all on this massive high after the programme. And Beth is going, oh my God, we've broken Twitter. You know, you should see the the reaction as she's scrolling down. And then she's going, ooh, oh wait, ooh oh my god this is and she was starting then to come across some of the comments from the old punk people and New York Dolls fans who'd you know still held resentment for me for even being there in the first place and some of the you know I mean it was really disgusting some of the things that people were saying well you know that was the prevalent thing that I had to kind of deal with at the time. But for Miles and Dylan and Flo, they could not believe this. What? Music used to be tribal? How come is that? You know? And I said, yeah, the punks didn't like the rockers and the rockers didn't like the mods and the the album people didn't like the singles and all of this.
1: Well, music has always, I think, been polarising and that's part of what I, I love about being a music fan. Well, they didn't like it
0: because now, if you think about it, Chris, you know, certainly once we've gone into the shuffle generation. I mean, Flo carries her music with her everywhere. And uh, she'll be listening to a Harry Styles track next to Bruno Mars, next to ABBA, next to Thomas Rhett. You know, she doesn't distinguish necessarily between country, R&B, you know, house, whatever it is. It's just the next track. It's just music. Yeah. And that I think, is a very healthy place to be, because we are, let's face it, we are all on the same side. We all love music. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Bob, you've dropped the C word, so I'll now ask, how and when did Bob Harris Country start?
0: Well, it actually started as a show in uh, April 1999. It started as a love of mine, although I didn't know it at the time necessarily, when I was buying those early rock and roll records, because... Yeah, you know, there's obviously the two feed lines, isn't it, into rock and roll at the time were blues and R&B on the one side, black music on the one side, and country, and actually hillbilly and bluegrass music on the other. So for every Little Richard, there'd be an Everly Brothers. You know, for every Chuck Berry, there'd be a Jerry Lee Lewis. And when you go across into the white rock and roll acts, Buddy Holly, Duane Eddy, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, even Elvis. Elvis was the perfect synthesis of this because he had one foot in black music. That first single of his, That's All Right, uh, was previously a blues record, R&B record by Arthur Big Boy Crudup. And Blue Moon of Kentucky, as the other side of his first single, was originally a bluegrass song from Bill Monroe. So that strand, the white strand, it had its roots in country, unless it was pop, unless it was Philadelphia or New York, but most of it was country. And so in buying those Jerry Lee Lewis records or Everly Brothers records, I was buying the records that were topping the country charts at the time. I mean, now looking back on it, even Ricky Nelson with James Burton, people like this. So then if you trace the lines through the 60s, Blonde on Blonde was recorded in Nashville. Bob Dylan went to Nashville again to record Nashville Skyline with Johnny Cash. We got the country rock in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, Amy Lou Harris appeared on Whistle Test. We were strong supporters of country rock on Whistle Test. Poco and the Eagles and Pure Prairie League. And uh, and then in the 80s, the Texan singer-songwriters, Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark, Steve Earle, seeps in country, southern country. So when I came to do the overnights on Radio 1 in the early 90s, I was playing all this music, all of it. And typically, you know, coming in to do sessions with people like Mary Chapin Carpenter and Restless Heart and Sean Colvin and Leslie Douglas, who was a student in the very early days of my overnight shows. When she became deputy controller of... Radio 2 in the late 90s and Americana had now burst through. So I'm now playing Lucinda Williams and Ryan Adams and people. She thought to herself, we want to modernize the country show. Bob is taking it to a place, although he doesn't actually know it yet, to a place I really want it to be. So she and Dave Shannon then approached me to ask me if I would like to do the country show. And I said, I don't know. Do I have the depth of knowledge? And Dave is going, yes, you do, for all the reasons I've just explained. But he said, we'll take you to Nashville in 99 and tell me what you think. I mean, the second I touched down in Nashville, I'd never been there before. I just felt like I'd arrived at my second home. I did and still do. I love it there so much. The music community, all the session guys, everybody works within 20 minutes of each other in Nashville. And all the infrastructure as we recognise it of the music industry, like music publishing companies, venues, equipment hire houses, record labels, you know, they all still exist in Nashville. So Nashville is drawing in not just country music people, but people from every genre of music. And again, you see, you've got that genre blurring thing that's happening in nashville now and i still love it and that's how it all came about
1: and they love you in nashville bob your shows always have been such a joy to listen to your delivery the meticulous planning it is obvious can you give us some insight into how you prepare a show
0: Well, it was drummed into me in those early days on Radio 1 by Jeff Griffin. Working with Jeff was the best grounding I could have had, really, because Jeff was genuinely a very, very hard taskmaster. He really was. You're not going to be loose around Jeff. He's not going to let you. He said to me, okay, bring in all your music, and I will teach you how to build a program. Now, I began to realize that one of the building blocks that i wanted to apply to my style of program building as i always call it is what i call a flow through now jeff really did help me create this because he would say right always start with something bright and familiar it'll draw the audience in you're providing them with a feel-good moment you're saying hi i'm here come in and um I then began to apply that to my second track as well. So in other words, tracks one and two, and you can hear it on any week I do country, your opening track has got a message of warmth and upbeat, you know, and the second track is literally saying, come on in. Then I do a menu after the second track, because now we've got a bit of time. I've gone bam, bam, the audience is with me. We can now sort of settle and go, right, well, how are you doing? Here's what we've got coming up. And obviously, then I'm explaining the music to come with the threads connecting it that I've thought of as the program's begun to take shape. So, in other words, let's say on the country show tonight, let's say there's a track that we've been sent by Ashley McBride, which is an old Everly Brothers song called When Will I Be Loved? So, I Immediately thought, right, let me match it with an actual Everly Brothers track. So you can go, say, to the top of the Billboard chart this week and just pick off the Everly Brothers song that's highest in the chart for this week and years gone by. And that gives you a reason to play that Everly Brothers. Then the two things are connected. And that's what I did. But then the program's finished. And then I get sent a duet by a female artist who's duetting with Jackson Brown on a song called Let It Be Me. Now, Let It Be Me was a relatively minor hit for the Everly Brothers in 1960. So I took their track out and put this one in. So here I am with two Everly Brothers and then go go from there. Let's say, Chris, I mean, I'm I'm slightly making this up now, but the Everly Brothers were originally from Kentucky. One of my great favorite singer-songwriters is a guy called Chris Knight, who is from Kentucky. So I could play him. Or there's a beautiful record an album called coal again by an american country music singer well coal is the product of kentucky so you can make these threads and the program rolls through in this kind of way and it's incredibly convenient as a presenter of that show because with every track i play i've built in giving myself something to say yeah so it It works on every level.
1: Yeah, brilliant.
0: And the thing about that then, Chris, is, and I know you know this, is that often radio underestimates the level of appreciation of its audience. You know, I was going to say the intelligence of its audience, but that's not quite right. But the perception of its audience, let's say, is often underestimated. Now, I know for a fact, even if everybody's just skimming on the surface of my show yeah it's this track and then it's that track and it's that track because it has this other layer to it that layer is there if you excavate down even slightly you're going to find that layer and go oh so that's what he's doing yeah you know i don't make it too overt but it's there nonetheless and so a lot of people who get attracted into my programs find themselves attracted by the fact that it does have this other dimension There is a flow through that runs right the way through the programme. And there's something rather appealing about that, because then you know that that thought has gone into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Bob. And I love that little is left to chance apart from what the audience bring to the programme. Yeah.
0: Well, there's always, I mean, I hope that hasn't made it sound rigid because it's not rigid. Um, I'm completely open to adjusting it all on air if the mood isn't quite right. But if you set the show up properly, then it should really work when you take it on air. And then it gives me the freedom to completely react and liaise with the audience that are listening.
1: Bob, I'm gonna head into the record box of questions here now. So it's a record box at my side. You say when, and I'll pull out a question for you, okay? And there are five. Okay. okay. Say when. When? Bob, is there a secret to being a great DJ? I don't think there's a secret
0: necessarily, but there are certain things about DJs that we all know and love. With each of them, they're completely themselves. I think that's really important that you don't try and sound like anybody else. The most unique person you can be is you. I think that's massively important. It's important to really mean it, you know? That's why I love playing music I love. And going back to an earlier question, Chris, it's why I stopped being critical of things on my show. My whole raison d'etre is to play music that I absolutely love so I can take on to air with me the enthusiasm for that piece of music. So I think individuality and enthusiasm are probably the two key. You've got to love the job and you can tell with any of the big, big, successful DJs through the years they've taken themselves onto air and they've loved every minute of it
1: yeah warmth to which of course you have by the bucket load Uh, Bob who christened you whispering Bob by the way
0: oh it was a a journalist in the very early days of Whistle Test uh, called Michael Watts I mean I never expected to be on TV I never did I, I always saw myself in a radio studio but you know TV picked me out not the other way around so when I went into Television Center and found myself in a TV studio, I was actually quite intimidated by the whole experience of it for a little while. And I went right back into my shell. So there was that element of it, but also the fact that I was genuinely trying to create the kind of atmosphere, that one-to-one that we're able to create on radio. So there was a very light, gentle way about my presentation and I was speaking very quietly and quite intimately if you like and Michael Watts who was in the studio wrote up a piece for Melody Maker and called me Whispering Bob Harris. It's stuck ever since. Because John picked it up, John Peel then suddenly, oh whispering Bob, you know, and and uh and then it just steamrolled. That's a very good peel. <laughs> John was always this is sort of all the lesson that's the kind of noise he used to make
1: (laughs) (laughs) back into the box for your second question bob say when okay go for it what's the best way to engage with an audience um directly i mean i know that's the obvious thing to say but
0: i try in my mind to think of just that one person who would be listening that i'm really talking to them It's as if I've got somebody sitting opposite me in the chair here in the studio, and I'm just looking them in the eyes and talking to them, and that's really the key to it, I think.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right, question three, then. You say when. Okay, go on. Okay. Your best ever moment on stage. Oh,
0: wow. How long have you got? I mean... I love being on stage. And funnily enough, when COVID hit and we weren't getting out anymore, that's the first time I realized how much time I've spent on stage during my career. I hadn't really thought about that before. I've always thought about myself as being the radio guy, but actually I've done a huge amount of live work through the years. So I've had a lot of experience of being on stage. I would say that to bookend it, those early days with mark and the t-rex tours they were just so exciting particularly you know the first gig we did at the Guildhall hall in portsmouth i remember going up to glasgow and doing glasgow apollo seeing that word t-rex to see on one of the newspaper mornings in the center of town so those early days with mark but now you know spin through to 2022 and there i am on stage hosting Country to country. I'm the main figurehead of the whole three days in front of an audience of 18 and a half thousand at O2. I mean, it's just so exciting. So I would say Mark and T
1: Rex in the early days and now C2C. Did you ever get to introduce Bowie on stage? I did, yeah. What was David Bowie like? David and I were really good friends in the late
0: 60s. And I when I knew that I was going to be starting on Radio One, I thought I'd better get out and do DJing and get some practice. So a friend of mine had a, an old fashioned disco and he had disco decks and everything. And he double booked himself on this particular day and asked me if I could do the gig for him that night, cover for him it was at a university, one of the colleges in East London. And I'd been spending quite a lot of time with David at Trident Studios at the time that he was working on the Space Oddity album. I'm on the Space Oddity album or the David Bowie album, I'm on a track called Memory of a Free Festival at the end. I sing on it. <laughs> so anyway, David was working on Space Odyssey at the time, literally on that track. And uh, I said, I'm doing this gig on Saturday. Do you want to come? So he came along. he just started going out with Angie. And uh, so the two of them came with me. And David got a little uh, acoustic guitar with a little amplifier. And he got the back track of... Space Oddity on a cassette, I think it was, that slotted into the front of this little amplifier so that you could hear the backtrack coming out of the speaker. And then David would play acoustic guitar and sing over the top of it. The problem was that my system at this gig was huge. I was slamming out Tamil Motown records and stacked singles and everything else. But I filled the dance floor. And then I said, okay, I just want to introduce you to somebody. There's somebody I want you to meet. And he's just about to put out a new record. He's going to play it for you tonight. His name is David Bowie. So David came out and he was very diffident. Took him ages to sort of tune up. The whole place had stopped, you can imagine. And there's this long pause. And then he started playing and people said, can't hear you, can't hear you. To cut a long story short, he got about halfway through Space Odyssey and they literally booed him off stage. And I I strode out to the center microphone and I said, I was so angry. I said, you wait, just remember this name, David Bowie. You'll remember the night you booed him off stage, you know? And that was the first gig I introduced David. David's. I then introduced quite a few of the early Ziggy Stardust uh, dates, but that one in particular, my first wife Sue still really remembers that night because I got so cross, yeah. How
1: to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come.
0: And then the strings in the middle sounded to me like a piece of classical music, most beautiful music I've ever heard. I've got through difficult moments, but I mean, I did. So here I am, and I'm still loving every minute. And so that's the energy that
1: feeds me. Bob, question four. Uh, you say when?
0: Okay, go for it, Chris.
1: I don't know how comfortable I am asking you this. Um, have you got any scores to settle?
0: No, in a word. I mean, I don't believe in score settling anyway. You just move on. That's it, really.
1: Good answer. Back into the box for your final question, Bob. Okay. That one. Yeah. How's that? Okay. What's the greatest record ever made? Stand By Me by Benny King. That's it, you know. Why?
0: Uh, Well, it was, I loved the song so much. I was 13, I suppose, when... The Drifters put out a single called There Goes My Baby. It was on Atlantic. And I'd never heard anything quite like this record before. It was this extraordinary mixture of soul and strings, you know, orchestral soul kind of thing. Uh, it was very dramatic. And the voice was incredible. The voice was Benny King. And I bought that and a whole run of subsequent Drifters singles. They were on a roll from then till 64. Just about everything they put out was just magnificent. But in late 1960, Benny King left the group to go solo. And the first record he released was a double-sider. It was First Taste of Love on one side, Spanish Harlem on the other. And I loved that too. And I had this record shop in Northampton where I used to go down and just get the new singles that were coming out almost sight unseen. And the follow-up to First Taste of Love and... Spanish Harlem was Stand By Me and I bought it not having heard it before and I took it home and put it on the record player you know and that boom 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 it was so and then when the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see and then the strings in the middle sounded to me like a piece of classical music most beautiful music I've ever heard and Benny King's voice I absolutely fell in love with that record and I've loved it that much every time I hear it still. So in 2020, when lockdown happened, my son Miles and I, and all of us at under the apple tree, you know, our little production company, wanted to do something to help the music community that suddenly was struggling so badly. And we created a new version of Stand By Me by Whispering Bob's All Stars. I mean, we got in touch with all the musicians, most of the musicians we know from both sides of the Atlantic. And everybody that we asked pretty much contributed. It was just amazing, from the country stars, Roseanne Cash, Darius Rucker, Jimmy Allen, to Rick Wakeman, Peter Frampton, Mark Knopfler, Beth Nelson-Chapman, Dwayne Eddy. I mean, it was... We have 59 different artists on the record. And Zoe at Radio 2 was brilliant, because she played it on Breakfast, and I got massive support here. I'm an ambassador for Help Musicians, so all the money from the single went to Help Musicians. And so Stand By Me has such an important place in my heart.
1: You're such an incredible guy, Bob. What a career. They were your five questions from the box. I've got one more. There's some kind of catastrophic event. It's the end of the world. You have to play the last three records on earth. What would they be?
0: Probably. Alone Again Or by Love from the Forever Changes album because John Peel gave me his final copy of that record because he thought I would love it and I did. So I have very strong emotional attachments to that final album and Alone Again Or is the opening track of it.
1: I think it's one of the greatest songs of all time.
0: Yeah, it really is. I think I probably would go as my second track play Guitar Man by Steve Earle, actually. It was the first track I ever played on the country show. Steve's a big hero of mine, and Guitar Man is just, it's a great record. And obviously the last song would be Stand By Me by Benny
1: King. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Can I ask, how's your health? It's good. My cancer's in remission, I'm feeling great, which is, it's
0: fantastic, actually. I'm so blessed to have got through really quite, difficult illnesses that I've experienced through the years and, and still be here. And what it's given me, honestly, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but it's given me a really heightened appreciation of life. It doesn't mean that I'm always happy, but what I do do is I try and live every day the best I can, you know, and, and really get the best out of every day and appreciate what's going on around me and appreciate actually how fortunate I am to be in the situation I'm in. So I've got through difficult moments. I think the dissection I had three years ago was really traumatic and scared the living daylights out of me. I was very, very fortunate to survive that. But, I mean, I did. So here I am, and I'm still loving every minute. And so that's the energy that feeds me,
1: I guess. You're a true legend, Bob. And. (laughs) I've never met a nicer guy in radio and I feel very privileged to have known you for nearly 20 years. I know. We have, not we, Chris? Yeah, we, we go back. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out to do this. Bob, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. Well, I've loved it. Cheers, Chris. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.